Tech Fighter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 457 for August 23rd, 2015. This week, Adobe's new and updated free mobile applications bring more power to your Apple phone or tablet and to your Android phone. In short circuits, no Windows 10 isn't perfect, and I'll describe some of the problems you might see. Additionally, I'll tell you about a method I've found to leverage the taskbar, the start menu, live tiles, and all applications to create a highly usable working environment. In spare parts, only on the website, auto theft investigators say they think mysterious devices are being used to steal cars. Acronis launches a new version of True Image, including cloud-based backup. Western Digital makes it possible for users to have up to 96 terabytes of network-attached storage at home, but I suspect the main users will be businesses. And Underwriters Labs says a bunch of its serialized holographic approval labels have been stolen. headline is Adobe encourages peripatetic designers. Peripatetic. Now there's a word you don't often see on a website or hear in a podcast. It sounds vaguely disturbing, maybe even a little criminal. It's used to describe somebody who travels from place to place, especially working or based in various places for relatively short periods. Designers used to be tethered to drafting tables and their computers. Tablets helped and Adobe has now blown the doors off design studios everywhere. Now designers can do what they do best wherever they are and whenever an idea strikes. About a year ago, Adobe released the first generation of mobile applications. So that I could see what's new, the company loaned me an iPad, and initially I thought not much had changed. As it turned out, the tablet had the previous generation of applications on it, and I kept thinking, this looks a lot like it did last year. Eventually, though, with the help of David Smiley at Adobe's Public Relations Agency, I realized I was looking at last year's apps. Fixing the problem required only that I delete the old apps and install the new ones, a process that took all of maybe five minutes. And what a difference! After installing the current versions of the various applications, I realized just how much difference Adobe's developers can make in a single year. But before I get to that, let me take a moment to talk about Adobe Voice. This is a mobile application that doesn't have a desktop analog as most of the mobile apps do. Voice is all about creating short videos to illustrate or explain. I spent about five minutes with Voice, probably two minutes or so reading through the instructions and then three minutes recording the soundtrack and loading text or images to create my first test video. It didn't amount to much. It basically was, so, hello, this is a test video. Isn't this wonderful? Or something like that. Well, then I decided to try something a little more expansive, and I put together about a two-and-a-half-minute program on algebra. Overall, it took no more than half an hour, and that included the process of creating 10 or 11 images. 
Now, if you've ever created a short video with multiple slides, narration, and music, realizing that the process of putting all those pieces together took only about 10 minutes should impress you. You can see my impressive little algebra video. There's a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. And anybody can make a video like that. I didn't have to do anything to fix the audio, to add the background music, to handle video or audio transitions, or anything else. An air conditioner was on in the room where I recorded the audio directly into the iPad mini. You'll hear it on the soundtrack, but overall the sound processing is surprisingly good. When it comes to empowering users, Adobe does an astonishingly good job. I'm not reviewing Adobe Voice in this program, but I can imagine that many people will find it to be a very useful application, which just happens to be free. But let's get on with the mobile apps. The most interesting new mobile feature for me is Adobe Comp, which works primarily in conjunction with InDesign, but it can also communicate with other Adobe desktop applications. This is what a designer would use to mock up a design while in a client's office, or maybe on the way into work on the subway, bus, or carpool. Not while you're driving, though, please. That mobility is the genius of Comp. The designer can start work on a project at any time and from any location. The first screen asks me specifically what I'm designing for. Now, I'm an old guy who thinks mainly in terms of paper, so I selected the letter size option. In the previous version of the mobile application, users had to select placeholders from a menu. Now Adobe Comp understands gestures, even polite gestures. To create a placeholder for paragraph text, I need only to draw a box with my finger and add three lines inside. Comp takes over from there and creates a block of lorem ipsum text. The same is true for geometric shapes, headlines, lines, and placeholders for images. I had created several color palettes in Adobe Color. You'll see an example on the TechBiter Worldwide website, and the palette at the top right is the result of pointing the iPad's camera at Chloe Cat, and I decided to use it for this exercise. Now bear in mind, I am not a designer, and I don't even play one on television. But in a past life, I was occasionally called on to design something for print. I've had enough experience working with real designers that I can usually create something that, even if it's not very inspiring, at least isn't terribly ugly. So check out the TechBiter Worldwide website and see what I put together. I created a color bar on the left side of the page and used the same color used in that bar for the lorem ipsum headline at the top. Then I placed a letter G inside a circle to act as the logo, and I downloaded the typeface for that G from the Adobe website, added a photo, text where the web address should be, and set up a couple of more blocks of text. It is possible to add actual text on the tablet, not just the placeholders. So I selected the text at the bottom of the page where I planned to put the URL and inserted the URL. Adjacent to the faux logo, I added an address. If you read the address, don't bother to look for it. It's for the Tishman Building in New York, and the Tishman Building doesn't have 75 floors. Additionally, the greentrees.com URL I created actually exists. It redirects to another company's website, so don't really bother looking for that either. But once I'd done all that, then the magic happens. The document is saved on the iPad. When I got back to the office, I simply told Adobe Comp 
to send it to InDesign. Took a couple of clicks on the screen. Moments later, InDesign opened on the desktop. I didn't have to do anything. It opened and loaded the design that I'd created in, say, the client's office on the iPad, complete with the typefaces I had downloaded. So now what? Well, this is pretty easy. It's time to replace the lorem ipsum text with a real message. I started by modifying the headline. Now, were this a real project, more modifications obviously would follow. All that lorem ipsum text would have to be replaced by a real marketing message. But really, wow. I'm old enough to remember hot metal type, even if I never had to deal with it. And I can remember the first feeble steps into computerized typesetting and design. And those I remember very well. If you are a designer, welcome to the most exciting period in the history of design, compliments of Adobe. Fortunately, some, but not all, of the mobile functions are available on Android phones. Unfortunately, not on Android tablets. That's good because despite the iPad's coolness, I find iPads to be really difficult to use. Simply attempting to delete files that are no longer necessary can be a complex operation that in some cases requires deleting the application and then reinstalling it. So I'd really like to see all these apps be ported to both Android phones and Android tablets. Phones will probably get most of the apps eventually. It has several of them now. But Android tablets aren't currently on the roadmap. That's because Adobe hasn't received enough requests from designers who use Android tablets. And I can't blame Adobe. The company needs to spend its development efforts where they will provide tools that will benefit the largest possible group of users. And right now, that group doesn't use a lot of Android tablets. Now, I said Comp was the most compelling application for me, but there are lots of other new or updated mobile apps from Adobe in this version of Creative Cloud. So let's take a look at some of the others. And we'll start with Photoshop Mix, which allows users to perform some image pre-processing on their phones. One of the most amazing functions is the one that allows multiple images to be combined. You'll see these on the TechBiter Worldwide website, and I have to warn you that the images I use to create what I'm calling the catbird picture should really never have been used together. The lighting isn't similar. One is an outdoor picture, the other taken indoors. But I happen to have those images handy, and they looked like they would at least fit together, if not fit together very well. We have a penguin from the Columbus Zoo and Chloe Cat sitting on a bed. Well, I cut out the penguin head, rotated it, resized it, and dropped it on top of the cat. And Photoshop Mix did enough to let me see where we're going with the image. It's going to need some refinement, though. With a couple of finger taps, I sent the combined file off to the computer for editing in Photoshop. And once I opened it in Photoshop, a certain amount of roughness was immediately apparent. The most obvious problem, other than the lighting mismatch, is the glow around the cutout image of the penguin. And there's a camera case in the background that's just kind of too bright. It's distracting. I worked on the mask on the penguin for a while, darkened the camera case in the background so that it would be less distracting, worked to remove the halo around the penguin head, and then used the clone tool to extend the penguin part of the image here and there. Now it still looks like a penguin picture stuck on top of a cat. After all, you can do only so much when the raw images are such a poor combination. Even so, if I had wanted to spend more time merging the neckline, the image could at least be passable. 
I wasn't trying to create great art here. I just wanted to suggest how useful it would be to be able to do some prep work when you're on a plane or a train, or even when you're just sitting at home in a comfy chair, and then finish the project when you're back at the computer. Moving on to Adobe Sketch, let's say you need a sketch of a pair of headphones. You'll see an example on the TechBiter Worldwide website. And let's say your ability to sketch is about equal to the ability of a giraffe to walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope while balancing a beach ball on its nose. That's about where my ability to sketch comes in. So instead of taking out a pencil, I put a couple of sheets of paper down near a north-facing window and used Adobe Sketch on the iPad to create a line art sketch. It needed a little cleaning up to remove the cord from the headphones and some areas where the background was visible, but the result would be a perfect starting point for somebody who needs a line art image. And it doesn't stop there. I've used Adobe Sketch to create sketches of people, too. Real estate agents who might want to create a striking look for some of their house pictures, something to make the image really stand out, could use Adobe Sketch. I pointed the iPad at my desk and used Adobe Sketch to create a minimalistic view. The sketch isn't limited to what you can photograph with the iPad either. You can use any photograph from any source as a starting point. In fact, that's true for all of the applications that can use the iPad's camera. If you already have a photograph that you'd prefer to use, just load it. Remember Adobe Cooler? Cooler is a Mauritian Creole word for color. Cooler, now called Color, is an application designed to help users create color schemes based on the colors present in nature, using the tablet's built-in camera, or the colors in a photograph. Each color scheme includes five colors that will work together well. Once created and named, the color scheme can be shared among various Creative Cloud applications. So I pointed the camera toward the ceiling on a late afternoon, and the color swatches that it created represent what the application suggested. See them on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Next, I saved that color scheme so I could use it in other applications, just as I had used the colors based on a cat in the demonstration of Adobe Comp. Besides saving the color scheme to your own private space, you can share it publicly if you want to. Several Adobe applications can use brushes, Photoshop, Adobe Illustrator, for example. But making a brush used to be really hard work. Adobe Brush simplifies the process to the point that it is actually a lot of fun. You'll see an image on the TechBiter Worldwide website with a couple of brushes that I created. The two at the top of the illustration are mine. I created one by pointing the iPad's camera at some rumpled sheets and clicking the shutter. Then I manipulated the image a bit and selected a style, and that's really all there is to it. Another one I started with a picture of a dental cleaning device, one of those little Oral-B combination flosser picker things. What this means is that your brush can start with an image of just about anything. And during the process of creating the brush, you'll work through several steps in one panel, and while you're doing that, you can use the brush as you're making it in the right panel to see just how it'll work in practice. As with color schemes, just save the brush to your private space in Creative Cloud or share it with the world. Adobe Hue is somewhat like Adobe Color, but it's a little more complex, and it's intended to create filters that'll be used in video projects. Adobe explains it this way. Use your iPhone or iPad to capture color and light from the world around you. 
or even from photos on your camera roll or Adobe Creative Cloud account, and then use those colors as looks to enhance your video projects. A look is a combination of color and light. You can preview the effect on the tablet, so I decided to give that a try. I captured some of the colors in my office, and to try it out, I moved to the preview screen. You'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website that the preview image has a lot of color in it, so the modification made by the look will be really apparent. I cranked up the effect to just a little past half scale, and check out what it did. To use this look as part of a video project, you just save it to your Creative Cloud account and then call it forth whenever you need it. Closed circuit message to Adobe. Hey, I'd really like to see this technology given the ability to work in Photoshop images too. Any chance? Well, those are some of the applications, not all. And I'm not even going to bother with a cat rating this time. There are just too many pieces and trying to rate them all separately would be confusing. What's remarkable is that most of the mobile apps provide some functionality even if you don't use them in connection with the full Creative Cloud suite. But when you do combine the mobile apps and the desktop apps, you have the best of both worlds. Technology is rushing forward to provide artists, whether they work with cameras or line drawings or illustrations, words, audio or video, with tools they can use whenever they want and wherever they happen to be. If you are a photographer, a videographer, a designer or graphic artist, or recording engineer, and you haven't looked at Creative Cloud, you are shortchanging yourself. Earlier I mentioned in passing hot metal type. Recently a friend gave me a link to a half-hour video that described the changeover in 1978 from hot metal type to what was high-tech in those days at the New York Times. Until Sunday, July 7, 1978, the Times had 140 linotype machines. The video reminded me that I had seen a linotype in operation at my hometown newspaper when I was a kid, but I never worked with one. By the time I did anything with printing, photo typesetting had replaced hot metal, and desktop typesetting would eventually replace photo typesetting. There is no question that today's computer typesetting is far better than the old hot metal technology but the old way is no less fascinating. The program, and I have a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide website, is a remarkable reminder of just how much manufacturing used to be involved in page makeup. In short circuits, the Windows 10 upgrade process has gone reasonably well, but with tens of millions of installations, one thing is certain, not every installation will be perfect. So this week let's take a look at some of the problems I've either seen or heard about and what kinds of remedies are available. I use the command prompt occasionally, so I have pinned it to the taskbar. Last week it started reporting an error and would not start. The computer actually has several command.exe files stored, some in the windows.old directory and others within the Windows file system. The shortcut to the one the system really wants to use is stored in the user directory. The executable file is in a directory called system32. After locating the executable, I found that I couldn't run it either, even clicking it directly. I thought the file might have become corrupt. The file's checksum, though, was okay, so that wasn't the problem. 
Eventually, I determined that the problem had been caused by another installed application that had created a bad entry in the registry. After fixing that, all is well. That I do not consider to be a Microsoft bug. My wife received an error message after restarting her computer one day. Critical error, it said. Start menu and Cortana aren't working. We'll try to fix it the next time you sign in. Restarting did take care of the problem the first time, but it returned, and restarting didn't fix it that time. This is a pretty uncommon problem, but one that renders the computer nearly useless when it does strike. Research on various forums, including Microsoft's support site, suggested several options ranging from easy to difficult. One of the easy suggestions was uninstall Avast antivirus. In the medium range, visit Microsoft support and explore the possible solutions. In the hard one, the one I really didn't want to do, roll back to Windows 8.1 or Windows 7. I always start with the easiest possible solution first. So in my case, removing a vast antivirus from my wife's computer resolved the problem. The Microsoft support site has several recommendations that I would have tried had that first option not worked. And of course, the last and least palatable option would have been to go back to the previous version of Windows until the problem had been resolved. Some users are also finding that clicking the start button has no effect or that the settings panel won't open. I suspect that this is related to that problem with the Start menu and Cortana. Windows now has two Settings sections, the new Settings panel and the traditional Control panel. Eventually, everything will be combined into the Settings panel, but that hasn't been done yet. If it's just the Settings panel that won't open, you might be able to open it with the Windows key and I, or by approaching it through the Action Center, that's the Windows key and A. And assuming you're able to get to the settings panel, start by installing all available updates just to make sure Microsoft has been releasing fixes to address various problems, including this one. If that doesn't work and you're unwilling to wait for an update to be installed, this problem can sometimes, in fact often, be fixed by creating a new user account. If you do that and the settings panel works properly, as it probably will, just migrate your data from the old account to the new account and then delete the old account. There's also been a problem reported with systems continuously rebooting. An update patch caused some computers to do this. I don't know a lot about this one, and I don't know anybody who has experienced it, but I do know that it was largely fixed in a patch that was released on August 11th. That's a cumulative update that covered several items. There were lots of posts on the Microsoft support forums about these problems, People reported that their computers proceeded through the update normally until reaching about 60% and then rebooted. The latest update also takes care of some vulnerabilities in Microsoft graphics components, a net framework bug that could allow elevation of privileges, and a mount manager bug that could also allow an attacker to use the computer as an administrator. Although that new patch did fix the reboot problem for a lot of users, some still have problems and Microsoft has provided a temporary workaround. Open the control panel, select View Installed Updates, click the Problem Update, which is KB3081436, and uninstall it, and restart the computer. The reboot problem is apparently caused by a bad entry in the Windows 10 registry that's created when one of the updates fails. My primary point here is that operating system updates, even when they're carefully planned, can fail. 
Microsoft Support's forums seem to be doing a pretty good job of handling the problems, and they are the best choice when something goes wrong. When Microsoft removed the Start menu from Windows 8, no small number of people simply freaked out. The Start menu made a partial return in Windows 8.1, and now Windows 10 provides an improved Start menu with alphabetized entries under all applications. When combined with optional tiles that were introduced in the Start screen, and the continued ability to pin commonly used applications to the taskbar, finding and starting applications is a lot easier. I have never been a fan of placing program icons on the desktop. That's probably because I rarely have fewer than 8 to 10 applications open at any time, and to start an application from the desktop, I'd have to collapse all of the applications. So I kept most of my frequently used applications on the taskbar, but there were so many commonly used applications, or programs waiting for review, they go on the taskbar too, that I had to create a two-story taskbar. I prefer small icons, so sometimes finding the tiny icon I wanted took a while. With the improved Start menu and the ability to set up a limited number of tiles on a small version of the Start screen that works in conjunction with the Start menu, I've been able to reduce the taskbar to a single level. The combined Windows 10 Start menu with optional tiles looks like it's going to be a winner. Common functions such as Explorer, Settings, Power, and the All Apps section is located in the lower left corner. And in fact, the All Apps section is what most people will associate with the older Start menu. The applications I use every day are on the taskbar. This is now a much smaller group. The Notification section over on the right side of the taskbar is wider than it used to be, but because of the new notification system that comes with Windows 10, I'll probably find that I can eliminate some of those. Windows keeps track of the applications I use most frequently at the top of the Start menu. I don't really see any great utility here, but no harm either. And all of the other applications that I use frequently, but not every day, are in the tiles. See the images on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Other installed applications are in the All Apps section. Or I can start an application the way I've done since Windows 8 by pressing the Windows key and typing a bit of the application's name. To run Google Earth, for example, just press the Windows key and type EAR, the first part of the word Earth, and then press Enter. This functionality has been around since Windows 8, and it's one of the reasons why I felt that all of that whining about the missing start menu was simply absurd. Note, though, that running the registry editor and other utilities with the potential to do damage requires a little more work. The Windows key plus REG doesn't offer the registry editor. Instead, press the Windows key and type regedit, R-E-G-E-D-I-T. Presumably, Microsoft believes that if you know the name of the command and how to spell it, you'll be able to use it properly. Use spare parts properly, too, only on the website. This week, auto theft investigators say they think mysterious devices are being used to steal cars. Acronis has launched a new version of True Image, including cloud-based backup. Western Digital makes it possible for users to have up to 96 terabytes of network-attached storage at home. I suspect, though, that the main users are going to be businesses. 
and Underwriters Labs says that a bunch of its serialized holographic approval labels have been stolen. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.